Välkommen till Fritankespod. Christer Sturmark heter jag och idag har jag en väldigt spännande gäst från Amerika. Ekonomiprofessorn Brian Kaplan som har skrivit flera kontroversiella böcker. En som argumenterar för total fri rörlighet, migration, öppna gränser helt enkelt. En annan bok som heter The Case Against Education där han kritiserar idén om högre utbildning faktiskt. Det låter märkligt, han ska nu få förklara själv vad han menar med de här mycket kontroversiella uppfattningarna. Brian Kaplan. You're, you're arguing for a completely mm-hmm. borderless world, a complete opening of borders. Mm-hmm. People should be able to move anywhere they like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people in Sweden would argue that Sweden has a very uh, well-developed welfare system and that mm-hmm. would be completely destroyed if anyone would come here because everyone would like to come here and mm-hmm. share this welfare system. What's your ar- argument against that? Yeah, so I'd say that we need to actually look at the numbers. So, I mean, of course, there have been many strange claims made about the Swedish welfare state. So in the U.S., many people say, well, it's because of this that no one in Sweden works anymore. All right. Now, you know that a lot of people in Sweden work. It's the same thing where you have to go and measure. Sure, there's going to be some disincentive effect. And when you give people a lot of free money not to work, some people are going to say, fine, I won't work. But you've got to actually measure it and see how big the effect is. And in the same way that the Swedish welfare state has not led to the end of work among native-born Swedes, say it's also not going to lead to the end of the work among immigrants who would come. Uh, so it really is a question of like you know how do the numbers actually stack up? I think it is, so. It is fair to say that if you keep benefits at exactly the current level and taxes exactly the level, and you have a very large increase in immigration, then you're going to have to change something. But again, it doesn't mean that you're going to have to have any kind of radical change. It could just mean that you're going to cut benefits by twenty percent. And something or something like that, and that's enough to go and balance things out. So, or again, of course, another possibility which horrifies people more than almost any other, strangely, is to say, well, how about we have we keep the benefits that native-born Swedes get and offer lower benefits to migrants, and in this way we could keep open all the benefits of immigration without having to worry about people migrating in order to just go on the go, go on the welfare system. But would that be a workable solution? I mean, the the equal value of people, for example, doesn't hold then. Well, the equal value people doesn't hold right now where a lot of people can't even legally visit the country or no. get a job. So again, there's there's some kind of uh, of double standard that makes sense to almost everyone but me, I guess, where say, look, if we say they can't come in the country at all, then we're not treating them unequally. Mm. But if we let them in and say they get 5% lower benefits than people who were born here, then we're treating them unequally. And I said, look, in both cases, you're treating them unequally. It's just the first thing is terrible. And the second thing is trivial. So why, if you're worried, really worried about inequality, why not get rid of the, of the grotesque inequalities where people aren't even allowed to be, to reside. They're not even allowed to get a job rather than small ones about exactly the details of the check they're getting from the government. Mm. I see what you mean. Uh, would you consider yourself, uh, uh, your moral philosophy sort of base view, is that utilitarian? I mean, again, I, I say actually it's more, uh, well, you know, like you, if, you were, if, you were, if you're doing moral philosophy, I just say it's intuitionist. But it, you know, like in, terms, in terms of politics, I just say you know, like presumption in favor of leaving people alone. But it's only a presumption. So, I mean, I would say that, you know, like I, I'm more libertarian than a utilitarian would be. Because I say it's not enough to say that a government program actually actually has bigger benefits than costs. So you actually need to show that it has you know a large excess of benefits over costs. Although I mean for open borders, I'd say the case is so strong it doesn't really matter that much what your philosophy is. 
So in the graphic novel on immigration I'm working on right now, I have a section where I think I go over nine different moral points of view and say all of them end up in exactly the same conclusion that I'm pushing here. It's because you know, whether you're utilitarian or utilitarian or egalitarian, all of these viewpoints wind up saying that the like you know that that it's that going and saying a person can't live and work in the country where they like is 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 a, just a horrible thing to do to them, and at least the kind of thing that requires some very strong justifications, which we just don't have. So you're writing a graphic novel yes. about this? <laughs> uh, yeah. So a nonfiction graphic novel. Uh, so okay. since I'm in Europe, probably your readers will have, will be more familiar with graphic novels than Americans are. But there's a whole subgenre of nonfiction. And probably the greatest example being the cartoon history of the universe by Larry Gonick. Mm. And uh, actually, so, you know, especially because a lot of the arguments that I have in immigration of all thought experiments, which I think are better shown than simply described. I have, I've had this idea of doing a graphic novel on it for a long time. And uh, a couple of years ago, I managed to talk one of the world's greatest web, co- web comic artists into being my collaborator. So if you've wow. heard of a web comic called Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial, drawn by Zach Wienersmith, yeah. he is my artist. I can't actually draw, but he is bringing my vision to life in ways that thrill and astound me. And I hope that I'm going to get a similar reaction from readers all over the world. That's fantastic. I, I read a novel, uh, a nonfiction graphic novel. I think it's called Logomix. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Logicomics. Logicomics. Comics. Logic Comics. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So you know that you know that that, that about Gödel and yeah, yeah. Uh, mathematics. Yep, yep. And, so yeah, you know, that that that, that, that was a, you know very very well done. You read um, it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I I so. My yeah, my collaborator Zach Wienersmith, He he's often emailing me. But have you read this? And I'm like, yeah, I've read that, Zach. So <laughs> and he's like, I I got to find something you haven't read. But yeah, so so I I've been a fan of graphic novels for about 15 years before actually you know, like you know like you know, really, you know seri- seriously trying to do my own. And yeah, so I mean, this is something where I mean, like it's like like I, it's really a dream come true that I'm able to do this. But again, yeah, so it's not just. For, you know, so of course it's not for kids. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have kids read it, and I think they could get something out of it. But I'm trying to take all of the research on this topic from from you know, economics and sociology and linguistics and and politics, of course, and you know, bring it all to, and you know, bring it all together in a way that's just you know a joy to read. Um, uh, going back to the question of open borders, um, your your moral philosophy base here is uh, giving everybody in the world the same chance basically mm-hmm. is that a, how I right, should right. at least at least saying you know, that you know, like like you know, I'll you know, a minimum leave people alone so there's you know there's there's one thing where you have an affirmative duty to give everyone the same chance but just a minimum you know so like like you know you know like that you know that every everyone should have the right to go and live and work where they want uh, you know, again, so the, you know, this is the, so again, this this is a much less demanding requirement than you have to equalize incomes of everyone on Earth, mm-hmm. or you are you you have an obligation to go and help people until everyone is is doing equally well. But it is, it is saying that you know, at minimum, there's this presumption of liberty that uh, you know everyone should have the same freedom to you know uh, to to interact with other people in the market economy that people who live in these economies take for granted. But uh, for example, if you compare your your moral base with Peter Singer, would mm-hmm. you say that he goes further than you? Yeah, yeah. Well, so Peter Singer is utilitarian. So yeah. yes, and he's and he, so I mean, you know, there's two things. So one thing is, I say he's used this to argue for very extensive you know, foreign aid programs, which I don't think are actually very effective or a good use of money, and I think they're a distraction from the reforms that would have great benefits, especially open borders. Uh, but yeah, but also like like at you know, at his moral base, so he is a utilitarian. So he does really uh, does uh, have the view that anyone who in, you know who like who has a, a standard of living that's uh, that, that's you know that's well above average, who doesn't give their money away to people who are poor, is 
committing a grave moral offense, and I think that's going too far. But again, but to say that people who are born born in poor countries aren't at least entitled to go and uh, and try to get a job in rich countries, that seems to me to be uh, quite, you know, quite bad. So again, what I'd say is, you know, like, you know, like, like Peter Singer is part of this very demanding moral tradition where unless you have done everything you possibly can for the poor on earth, then you are falling short. And I'd say, I'm just trying to push a much more common sense view, which is if you see a foreigner, does that mean that it's okay for you to stop him from getting a job? No. Right. And you're like, well, what if he's competing with you? Like, well, is it okay to like slash the tires of someone who's competing for you? Like, 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 like for your job say like, no, and I say like, you know, so I say that like everyone on earth has the same rights to do those things. But again, you know, so mm. you know, I mean, again, I, I think you know Peter Singer's view, you generally considered crazy, and like, I know, like, of course, even Peter Singer does not actually live up to his own views. So mm-hmm. if I remember, he says that he you know gives twenty percent of his income away to charity, whereas I think on his own view, he really needs to be giving away ninety eight or ninety nine percent to charity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, twenty percent is a lot compared to a normal person, but it's very very small compared to what he says everyone is obliged to do. Mm. I see. Uh, you're a professor of economy at which university? Uh, George Mason University. So, what, do you teach these things in your courses? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when when it is relevant to the topic. So, yes, when I do labor economics, I have a week on immigration, and I talk about this. Again, of course, partly what you're trying to do is to expose the students to all the main arguments. Although I'd also say that most of the arguments against immigration are so much a part of popular culture that the students know them already. So a lot of what I do is say, all right, well, there's this argument. You've heard it. How good is the evidence for this argument? Right. And uh, and so, you know, that that that's a big part of what I do. Do you get uh, the students to take your side on this? Um, so, I mean, of course, you know, like, you know, like I, I, I don't want to apply any kind of pressure and certainly don't you know, like you know, tell people, look, you can you can get a great grade with any position that you want. Uh, you know, like, so like, you know, I'll often have a question saying, you know, Kaplan says this. You know, like, like, you know, like, like, you know, so you know, what, what, what's the biggest weakness in the argument? And you can, you get a getting right on that. Or sometimes it'll just be like, like yeah, accurately describe George Borjas's position on this. Mm. Right. So it's one where you can agree or disagree, but you can still accurately describe it. But yeah. So like in general, I do like to talk to my students about subjects that I think are fascinating and important. And that's also by, by sheer coincidence, the topics that I work on are the ones I think are fascinating and important. So you do research as well? Oh yeah, so what do you research? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I mean I mean like so I mean I I would even consider the immigration uh, graphic novel to be research because I am going and you know taking like all the evidence that that's out there and synthesizing it together into an original product. Mm. Uh but uh so you know my first book the, the myth of the rational voter this uh is Uh, you know, it's basically you know, public opinion about economics and understanding what's going on there. So the myth yes, of the rational the, uh, voter. Yeah, my first book is called the myth of the Ra- the myth of the rational voter. Mm. So a lot of it is looking at what does the public think about economics versus what's really going on. You'll see just these enormous uh, these enormous chasms between what almost everyone who's looked at the facts says and what normal people say. Mm. And so you know that's that's one of the main kinds of research that I've worked on. But uh, as, but does yeah. anyone believe that the, the voter is rational? Uh, actually, yes, there's, there are, you know, there are a lot of social scientists who are just say, look, like, you know, like they must have a good reason, like whatever anybody thinks they've got to have the, you know, they have to have good reasons. And of course there's, you know, there's also just the, the popular view of can, you know, can really, you know, can 150 million Americans really be wrong? Mm. Right. So, I mean, like anytime someone, someone, whether it's a journalist or a politician or just a man of street says, look, what the, you know, what the Swedish people want on this is X. 
Mm. Right. You know, underlying it, there's some idea. Well, if the, what the Swedish people want is that, then who are you to say they're wrong? So, yeah. So I'd say that, you know, there's actually a very widespread view that voters at minimum aren't too far wrong. And but what, what, yeah. what I mean, there's a lot of research on psychology of economics, yes. for example. Right. The ultimatum game, for right. take mm-hmm. a very simple example, shows that we're not acting mm-hmm. rationally. In right. Decision yeah. Assuming, you know, like I mean, say a lot of people working it would just say, yeah, yeah, there's that experiment, but that doesn't, that's not really re- relevant. Or, mm-hmm. of course, there's often people who will say that's part of a longer run metagame where you are doing things, where you are being rational because you want people to know that you can't go and offer me ultimatums that, that are unfavorable and expect me to accept them. Mm-hmm. Again, there's always like, yeah, but nobody's ever going to find out. It's just an experiment. And again, there's like, well, people cultivate gen- general strategies and they aren't that flexible. So again, part of it is that whatever evidence people see, there's, an- there's another group, whatever evidence comes along, there's a contingent of researchers saying, ah, well, that makes perfect sense, right? And, you know, I often point out, well, you should have to say what makes perfect sense before you know the result. Otherwise, it's just... A, it's just a, a you know, post hoc as saying justification of whatever actually of whatever happens to exist. So, which is technically known as completely bogus. Tell me, what's your take on the political situation in America right now? The the Trump administration, for yes. example. Um, well, that's that's the you know, big question. Guess you know the first thing to say is that the fact that Trump won shows almost nothing. Mm-hmm. The fact that he could be the nominee shows a lot. Okay. Right. So many people look at this and say Trump won the election. This shows that Americans are a certain way. But again, like, you know, like a small number of votes in, in crucial states would have tipped the outcome. Uh, so like the very fact that he won, that doesn't show really anything. But the fact that he became the nominee, I think, does show that Republicans have become very nationalist you know, or maybe were nationalist all along and that you know, free market policies never really actually excited them that much. Um, you know, and you know, like even you know, really sort of the stereotype of the free market Republican is one based not on observing actual Republicans. It's one based upon people who have no Republican friends sitting around imagining what they think Republicans are like. Um, you know, so I mean, my my view about you know, Trump personally is you know he's just a terrible human being, and um, like I don't know any other way of way of putting it. it just seems <laughs> like a, a you know a you know a liar. Again, like I pride myself on saying the truth all the time. And again, he seems to have almost the opposite ethos of enjoy saying things that are obviously not true, right? Um, in terms of his policies, again, of course, he seems you know very anti-immigrant to me. Uh, I mean, the main saving grace is that he hasn't really accomplished very much. Um, so he did make a make an effort to go and fundamentally change American immigration law, but that went nowhere, and he gave up. So the things that he's do that he's been doing to immigrants, which you know, as you might guess, I think are are bad, but still. These are ones that he's just doing using his executive authority. And so uh, as soon as he's gone, things can go back right back to normal. Whereas if he changed the law, then that could have very long lasting effects. The last major American immigration law was in 1965, and it still governs. So really, almost everything that you see in American immigration policy goes back to this law in 1965. And, and, again, and the interesting thing, if you know the history of the law, is that it really accidentally liberalized immigration. Mm-hmm. In uh, you know, like we can you know, I can give you details if you want, but the purpose of it for the people who who uh, passed the law it was not to increase immigration at all, but there were some key strange loopholes in the law which ended up leading to a big Im- increase in immigration. And what's interesting about it is that this does not lead to corrective legislation; it just stayed on the books, continuing to happen. And I think this is a great accident of history. And I would have been horrified if Trump managed to repeal it and replace it with something restrictive, but he's failed. Um, so, and again, normally in American politics, 
the biggest legislative accomplishment of a president happens in his first two years or doesn't happen at all. So I think he's basically out of time and will fail to have any fundamental change in immigration But law. he's changing the Supreme yeah. Court, which yes. will stay on for right. very long. Yeah, so that probably, I mean, that'll have almost no effect on immigration, which is okay. the, the, the issue that we're talking about. Uh, for the other stuff, it may it may have a modest effect, but even for the one that people are, are, are most worried about, which is change, changing abortion law, yeah. uh, the main thing to understand is that this does not mean abortion becomes illegal in the United States. It means that individual states will decide in, in the most, and then that's only in the most extreme scenario where the court totally overrules Roe versus Wade, mm-hmm. which again, I think is still quite unlikely. But even if it did happen, still policy would stay about the same in you know, probably 80 or 90%, for 80 or 90% of the population of the U.S., there's you know, people who want to get you very worried will say, you know, they think there's maybe 15 states that will change, but these are low population states generally. So, um, and of course, uh, if you, you know, again, like I'm not advocating this, but you know, or not, not saying this is not, not a problem, but it's not nearly severe a problem as if it would change for the whole country, which will not happen. And Roe versus Wade, maybe we should explain what that is. Ah, uh, yes. So that was a key Supreme Court decision in the 1970s that ruled that there was a fundamental right uh, uh, to uh, you know, right right uh, to abortion for women in uh, you know access to legal abortion for women in the first trimester of the pregnancy. So basically, U.S. states, no U.S. state is, is allowed to go and regulate abortion or, or at least to uh, for, uh, to prohibit abortion if it happens during the first trimester, the first third of the pregnancy. Uh, you know, there can be some minor restrictions, but yeah, but uh, so, you know, you know, so, the, the, you know, so there may, there may be some effect there, but again, I think that, you know, you know, so again, the, the, the main thing I would say about Trump is that he is a reality TV star <laughs> and he has all the skills that you would expect for a reality TV star of getting people excited and getting people talking and afraid and interested and intrigued and weaving a good story. But, you know, he's not a politician in of any traditional kind. He's not, he has a very short attention span. And so though I think if we, you know, if, uh, if people, act, you know, if he actually were a dictator, I think he'd be really bad, but you know, he's not, there are checks and balances on him, which keep him from doing most of the really bad stuff that he has said that he would want to do. Do you think he will be reelected? Uh, well, so I am a big believer in betting markets, and I just double-checked the election betting markets. So they gave him about a one in three chance of being of, be, of being president of being of winning the president the next presidential election. That probability includes many things. It includes does he survive because mm. he's an old man. Mm. It includes does he run. It includes uh, you know like the you know and, and and of course does he win? So all of those things are packed into that one and three. But I would say I think he probably will not be reelected two and three. But um, you know like it's it's you know far it's far from settled. Uh, you know and you know just the, the main thing to understand is that you know of course there are plenty of people who do like him. So if you if you only watch mainstream American media, you you would sort of be confused because it's like it seems that everyone hates him. So. Then how is he? How is he in power? And the answer is, there's a lot of people who either like him, or at least they dislike him less than than the Democrats, who also uh, are disliked. I mean, you know, and you know, like other thing to know about the last election was that you know, both Trump and Clinton set records for unpopularity of a candidate. So both parties, through this strange process, wound up uh, nominating candidates that are that were extremely extremely disliked by most of the population. And then the person who won, he was not actually the one that was less disliked because Hillary won more votes, but Trump managed to get uh, to uh, to uh, to switch voters over in, key, in in some key swing states, which, again, probably uh, 
I don't know how much your, your, your listeners would know about the Electoral College in the U.S. But oh, a little bit, I think. Yes, but yeah. basically the U.S. is a system where if you get a majority of the votes in a state, you get all of the yeah. votes for that state. The winner takes it all. Winner takes it all state by state. Yeah. And this means that a state like California, a million new Republicans would be completely worthless in California because it still wouldn't be enough to flip the state. And so Democrats would still win it. Whereas, you know, like 20,000 more Republicans in Ohio can give you an enormous gain. And yeah. that's, again, you know, it's an oddity of the U.S. system. But that's Should it be changed, changed, that system? Yes. <laughs> you yeah. think so? Yes. I mean, I mean, honestly, I don't care. I mean, <laughs> I don't care. something where it's led to, it's led to some, some, some bad results. It's better results. The majority rule, it's led to some worse results. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm someone who always judges elections based upon what were the policy results that were created by this election. Uh, you know, so again, like, you know, if you could have a system where you like, you know, changed it, changed it so that something better would happen, I'd say, yeah, let's just change the rules just for that. But I don't. I don't. Have, I don't have any appreciation for the integrity of the electoral system per se. It's all. I judge it always just based upon results. Mm, okay. Okay. The other topic that you wrote about mm. in a book called "The Case Against Education." Mm-hmm. Uh, explain a little bit what that's uh, about. Right. So, you know, not just in, you know, in economics, but also among you know, the general public and politicians, there's an idea that education leads to better uh, you know better better performance in careers and higher higher income and the reason for this is and must be that you are taught useful job skills in school All right so in other words we look at the world we see that people with more education make more money why well obviously the answer is that in school they go and teach you how to do things and that's why employers like you better All right um, you know anytime that you hear a politician say we need to invest in people they are appealing to this idea uh, this all sounds good until you actually remember or pay attention to what school is really like. <laughs> and, you know, I, if, you, like, if your experience is anything like mine, you remember spending many, many thousands of hours in school studying subjects that you never needed to know after the final exam. And ones where everybody knew you were never going to need to know, need to know it about the final after the final exam. If you're studying Latin, it's like, well, when is it going to come up? Are you going to fall into a time machine and go back to ancient Rome? Is Latin going to be revived as a common language? Of course not. Right. So then there's the puzzle. But yes, but why would employers pay such generous rewards for people who study subjects they don't actually need to know in order to do the job to study subjects that don't really raise their productivity? And this is where I bring up another story that's been around before me, and it's called the signaling model. And it says that employers might pay educated workers more, not because they acquire useful skills, but because it persuades or convinces the employer that you are good. Right, because doing well in school show, uh, convinces employers that you're smart. It convinces employers that you're hardworking. Convinces employers that you're conformist, that you're obedient. Right, and this is another uh, way that education could raise your earnings. It's another way it could pay off. It's a way to signal or to convince employers that they should go and not throw your application away, give you an interview, listen to what you have to say, and actually go and uh, hire you for the job and train you. Now, what difference does it really make? Well, here's the difference. If uh, the way that education raises earnings is by teaching useful skills, then if everyone gets more education, the whole society gets richer. If the way that education raises earnings is by making you look good, then it's not a way to make the society richer because if everyone gets more and more education, then you need more to be considered worthy of a job, right? And again, like if this signaling story that I'm saying is right, then, you, then if uh, you raise the education level of the whole society, you should expect that you'll get what we call credential inflation 
where you need more degrees to be worried, worthy of the same job that your parents or grandparents got with fewer degrees. Mm-hmm. Right? In the United States, credential inflation is rampant. It is very common for waiters at nice restaurants to have college degrees. People drive cabs of college degrees. And again, not just one in a million, a high percentage, you know, 20, 30, 40% of people in jobs where it seems crazy to think that you would need college for it. And yet this is what we see, right? And what's going on? I say, you know, this fits very nicely with my story, namely that the more education that your competitors have, the more you need to stand out from the group. But if everyone has more, that everyone needs more in order to look good. Uh, so, you know, like, like a common analogy that that I, that I use and other people have used to explain this is uh, you're at a concert. Everyone's sitting down. What can one person do to see better? Stand up. But if everyone stands yeah. up, does everyone see better? Of course not. And no. I say education is, is just like that for the most part. Not entirely. And I freely admit that people learn some useful skills in school. But I still say that most of what's going on is this futile rat race where we keep encouraging people to do more, and yet the more you do, the more you need in order to get the same job that your parents or grandparents could have but gotten I'm without thinking, it. I'm thinking there, there is another aspect of, of higher education, which is sort of cognitive development, intellectual mm-hmm. development. Yes. I can take myself, for example. Mm-hmm. I studied computer science and mathematical mm-hmm. logic and stuff at the university. Mm-hmm. Of course, I don't need those skills as a book publisher. Mm-hmm. But it actually taught me how to read science, nonfiction mm-hmm. in English better mm-hmm. and analytical thinking, I, mm-hmm. I think, I developed there. Right. Uh, so this is a very inter- interdisciplinary book that I wrote. So most economists read in education only read economics. So I spent six years on the book and four of it was probably just reading. So in addition to economics, so doing you know, psychology, education research, sociology. Anyway, so... Uh, you, like your story has been studied very, very extensively by educational psychologists for about a hundred years. And the, the most they'll say is if what your story, your story is true, then you are an extreme exception because it generally does you know, people generally do not have overall cognitive development from education. Okay. Instead, education is norm, normally extremely specific. You either use exactly the skills you're taught or it's a waste. Right. So there's a lot of work on this where they where they try to go and see, well, if we teach people one thing, if we teach them computer programming and then give them tasks involving book publishing, can we measure the improvement? So some of this is actually experimental work. And again, in general, it's just very hard to find these okay. indirect effects. So and again, now, you know, now this is just my summary of it. Uh, you know, and you might say, well, like, like, you know, like, can we really trust this guy? The main thing I'll say if you go and read the work is that the psychologists who work in this area normally very desperately want to find that you're right. Mm. They desperately want to find that even if what you're studying is not directly useful, that it has enormous indirect benefits and just changes the whole way you think. It teaches you how to think, how to reason critically, and yet they can't find the effects or the effects they find are extremely small. So I would say, you know, mostly that's wishful thinking. And the real way people get good at their jobs is practice. Hmm. and specific practice. So like the way you become an airline pilot, it's not by studying computer science and learning logic, and then you know how to fly a plane. That doesn't work that way. No, Instead, you put them in a flight simulator. Don't don't put them in a plane at first, for God's sake. They'll <laughs> die and kill people. But put them in a flight simulator with a with an experienced pilot right next to them to say, press that dial. Not that much. You just, you, you just crash the plane over and over and over and do that. This is the way that people get good at basically everything is through specific practice and you know, this is actually one of the big and surprising results for most people of educational psychology is just how specific learning is and how practice is really the heart of acquiring competence. It's not sitting in a classroom being lectured at. 
I see. Okay, one, one last But you qu- can be different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one last question, but a big one, I think. Uh, your, your view of the open border uh, and, and so on. I mean, <clears throat> what we see in the world right now is, is the opposite. I mean, yeah, we see oh, yes. populism, nationalism, mm-hmm. uh, not only in mm-hmm. Hungary or in America, but also in India, for example, yes, Hindu nationalism and so on. Mm-hmm. It seems to go in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. What, what, how to change the direction? Yes. On a global yeah. level. Well, I mean, of course, one sad possibility is maybe, maybe you can't, and people are just going to do something bad, and uh, and I can't stop them. Uh, you know, so like, and that's something that I, I generally have to live with. And like, my first book, The Myth of Rational Voter, is really all about why bad policies are so popular so much of the time. You know, you know the main things that I would say that you know about like you know don't give up hope and and is you know like so first of all. I would just say, like, you know, go back to Europe in 1945 and imagine describing modern Europe to them and just think about how they would laugh in your face bitterly and say, yeah, I'm sure the Soviet Union is going to peacefully collapse. They're going to let Eastern Europe go free. There's going to be a giant, you know, not only a giant customs union, but there's also going to be free migration. You won't even need a passport to cross most of the borders. Why don't you, you know, yes, yes. Well, maybe that'll be true in heaven, but it's never going to be true in Europe. You know, I mean, I think that 1945, most people would have said, look, the real question isn't will I, like, will I, like, will any of this good stuff happen? The real question is, when does World War III happen? Mm. And yet things worked out tremendously well by comparison. And again, this is what I, whenever people say, like, you know, like the Swedish election, something bad's going to happen. It's like, well, how would this have sounded to someone in 1945? And I think they said, wow, like in context, this is actually all pretty good. So that's that's where I get a lot of my hope from is just... The 1945 benchmark, just seeing like like one totalitarian despotism being crushed but taken over by another, like possibly even more threatening, seeing nuclear weapons being uh, being being developed and deployed. I mean, like like you know, I mean, I really think if I were alive in 1945, I would just I'm not going to live in a major city. I'm just going to move out to a very remote location. I'm just too terrified of World War III. And yet, turns out that that would have just been uh, that would have been paranoid, and things things worked out. You know, like to a degree that people w- would have just thought was comical, just, I mean, especially to say like, like, you know, the, the hatred between France and Germany is going to go away. People just thought that was crazy. So overall, I would say that like any the, the long run pattern over decades is that uh, the values of the West, which of course has nothing to do with being in a geographic location, but you know, like you can have, you can, Japan is very Western and the, there, what, what's, what is more, yet what is more Eastern, you know, the values of the West have been doing great over the long run. And furthermore, when people say that they're in decline, I think they generally focus on the most pessimistic measures they can, rather than the ones that show things looking good, like just like what kind of entertainment do people watch, um, you know, things like that. Or you know, like if you're talking about immigration, you know, people love the idea of oh, like the the you know, the, the, the next generation they're not assimilating, they're actually going back to Sharia and so on, and they're joining ISIS. So like. Like how many people actually joined ISIS and went and fought for ISIS from Sweden? I think it's what is it like a couple hundred? Yeah. Right. So you can say that's scary. Like how many more like have no interest in that and are just and uh, are quietly are, are quiet apostates and just want to go and live a normal life in Sweden? Like they say like they are they are outnumbered a hundred to one, a thousand to one, ten thousand mm. to one, but that's not a story. And again, like, you know, a big part of all my work is to say, look, you know, the stuff that appears on the front page of the newspaper, it's not literally, they're not literally lies, but they are totally misleading because basically they're trying to show you the most horrifying thing they can find and get you upset about it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, things that are statistically normal, like they, they have almost no interest in, certainly they don't want to go and tell you anything good. 
and even bad things that that are just that are just boring. They won't tell you, so they'd rather tell you about 100 cars were burned than 300 people died in auto accidents last year in Sweden. So this is a uh, this is a number I just got from people the talk I just gave. Now, like obviously, 300 people dying is way worse than 100 cars being burned. But what is a front page story? There's never going to be a front page story, or at least I doubt there'll be a front page story about accident fatality or auto accident fatalities. It's so boring to people. Right, and just realizing the fact that something is in the newspapers and upsetting people does not show it's an important problem. In fact, I think it generally shows the opposite. It says it's so rare that people that it's still exciting to people. Gen, like genuinely horrible problems, people just get used to them and take them for granted, and it's not news anymore. So you are an optimist. Uh, that's clear. Yeah. So, so, nice. so yeah. So I say I'm like I'm I'm. I'm not really, I'm not optimistic politically. I don't I don't think that politically things are going to on on average move in my direction. They may, but uh, at least in the United States, I think the, you know the, the like the world overall. I'm more optimistic that things will move in a freer direction. I mean, like honestly, where I get my optimism my optimism from is from like you know probably you know, like economic progress, probably you know, like, like progress of entertainment, uh, you know you know, th- you know things like this. And of course, I also just get a lot. I mean, I have four kids, and you know, like a lot a lot of my optimism is just watching them grow up, and hmm. also just appreciating like all of the great things that they have that I didn't have when I was a kid. And you know, my family was not poor, and yet we had you know, like three channels of television, four maybe maybe three and a half maybe. <laughs> and so you look now, you have like. Like endless, an endless cornucopia of wonderful entertainment. It's not just the junk that I grew up on. It's like you know stuff that could appeal to anyone, no matter how thoughtful they were. You know, like there's always been junk that appeals to the that appeals to the lowest common denominator. But just seeing how you know, like my sons and I have watched like ten great great Norwegian and Swedish movies. Mm. And uh, I guess more Norwegian, actually. Uh-huh. We tend to like those more for some, for some reason. Or at least Netflix puts the Norwegian ones on more. Yeah. But anyway, like, like when I was a kid, that would just be completely unimaginable. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's you know, what's where yeah. I where I get my optimism overall, and just seeing how you know, like you know, absolute poverty really is disappearing on Earth right before our eyes. Again, if uh, you know, insofar as you have the patience to actually look at the numbers. So again, of course, like like it hasn't gone down to zero yet, but. You know, like like humanity is on track to make absolute poverty almost vanish within the next twenty or thirty years, mm-hmm. so and like you know that's you know, like a tremendous and historic accomplishment, unprecedented in the history of mankind, and yet you'll never see it on a newspaper headline. So keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much, Professor Brian Kaplan, for talking to me. Uh, great pleasure. Thank you. Mm-hmm.